it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 654 for September 27th, 2020, and I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, our guest is Bart Bouchats with Programming by Stealth 102 of X. Do we finally get to play with Git now, Bart? A No. <laughs> You're teasing me. I hadn't intended to tease you, if that makes it any better. Okay. Um, I work in education. It's the start of the year. Something went bang at five past five on a Friday evening. It's been a weekend. Uh, okay. So there go you're the... lucky to have any show notes at all from me, to be honest. Um, so we're basically, we're going to get to do less than I had planned. Okay. Well, but we get something. So that's good. If for a little while there, Bert's uh, weekend was looking like we weren't going to get to do anything at all. It was looking very bad for a while. Yeah. Uh, thank you for being flexible. No problem. Uh, anyway, so where we left our story was that we'd explained the general concepts of what we're trying to achieve with version control. We hadn't narrowed into any specific version control. We talked about the two sort of general big picture models, your client server traditional model and your more chaotic um, peer to peer. Anarchist. Yeah, anarchist, exactly. Peer to peer model or distributed, as it's generally called. And we explained why of all why we prefer distributed and why of all the distributed out there, the one we're going to do is the open source leader of the pack, which is Git. So let us start. Actually, can I, I'm going to interrupt for real quickly here, okay. because at the end of the uh, last episode, I was talking about how we didn't have any homework and how would we have homework and how would you be able to do homework related to this that you it would interrupt our flow of introducing Git and, and learning about it. And so I put the call out to the Slack community, podfeed.com slash Slack. You should be a member there and join the PBS channel. And uh, and got a lot of creative ideas on what kind of a homework assignment we could have. And we got into the idea of maybe what we need is a teaching assistant. And uh, Mike Price, very nicely, also known as Grumpy in the chat room. He's not at all grumpy. He's not, though. He's lovely. He is lovely. Uh, he volunteered to be our teaching assistant. But then we started rolling around. What would he, that a teaching assistant do? And would they come on the show? How would this work? And we started going round and round. And then, then I, I was speaking to him, and I was also talking to Dorothy about this, and they both said something really interesting. Um, I think it was Mike. They said, we don't want to learn to use Git on something we care about. We, want, we don't want to build something we care deeply about and then screw it all up using Git. So maybe we shouldn't have a project. We should make a Hello World app, you know, do something really stupid that we don't care about. And that way we'd be able to really flex our, our, our muscles and learn how to use it without being terrified. That's a really good point, actually. In which case, I think the assignments, the challenges can be a lot more basically put into practice what we learn. Because there is actually, I managed to find a small challenge for the end of this one. It's, oh, okay, I good. Say small. It's, I call it a simple challenge. It's not onerous, but it is actually important. Okay, good, so. good, good. So don't expect a big, you know, long running project necessarily as much as maybe little pieces that that flex the muscles. And don't be afraid to use it on something you don't care about. I mean, if you're wild and crazy, use it on something you do care about. Yeah, it, there's swings and roundabouts in that. But yes, yes, yeah. I, I definitely see the logic. There also was okay. a, a lot of ideas about what the project could be. And my personal favorite was the idea of making a calculator. So I'm a big fan of uh, reverse Polish notation calculators. I may just go start building that on my own, whether I'm being told to or not. 
I, you don't know. I might do it. Is OPN the one where it's plus two comma three, or is it two comma three plus? Uh, there's no commas at all. It's it's like Wait. six enter three plus. Oh yeah, okay. So I said comma as a separate. Okay. Word. So it's basically operands followed by operator, not operator followed by operands. Yeah. Okay. What he said. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. Six so enter three okay. plus. I don't remember which one's an operand and which one. Well, the operator's the plus. Yeah. So, yeah, operands first, then operator. Gotcha. So plus what you want to do and then what you want to do it to. Basically, the idea is if you use reverse Polish notation, if on a long, complex calculation, you will hit fewer keystrokes than if you have to put in parentheses. Ah. That's what it eliminates. So it's much more efficient as long as the, you know, if it's three plus seven equals 10, that's not, you know, you're not going to gain a lot. You're not going to lose anything, but. Yeah, yeah. But if you have multiplication, division, all that kind of stuff right. thrown in. Right, multiplying a number times two things added together. Excellent. Yeah. I, I, it does involve thinking a certain way, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I, I mean, I just started thinking about, ooh, how would I draw the buttons? How would I lay them out using Bootstrap? How would I do this? How would I start doing the logic? I mean, my brain just started going crazy about what fun that would be. So he he introduced an itch to be scratched or whoever came Perfect. up with the idea. I forget who it was, unfortunately. Anyway, now we can start. Excellent. So last time we sort of said that we would be doing Git. And we also laid out that we would be doing a certain journey where we're going to start out um, with local repositories and then move on to remote repositories for our own use. So for backup and for easy access across multiple devices. And then finally, we'll step up to the Big Boy League and we'll learn how to interact with other open source projects. So shared public repositories and collaborate basically to other people's code. Okay. And before we do any of that, it's really important to understand two very related things. How Git actually works under the hood hmm. and what words Git uses for these things. Because, yes, they're English words, but they're also jargon. They have oh. a second meaning, right? They have a meaning in the dictionary and they have a meaning in Git. And if we're hmm. not going to get ourselves very confused, we should understand that when a Git person says a tree, they don't mean something with leaves. Mm -hmm. They mean something else. When a okay. Git person is talking about a branch, they mean something else, which very annoyingly has nothing to do with a tree. I really oh. wish they had used. Yeah. Oh, I just assumed it did. Yeah, no, no. It's one metaphor they picked and they gave it two completely different meanings because that's that's very Linux of you. Um, <laughs> For Geeks by Geeks. <laughs> okay. Um, so what we're basically what we want to get to today is to understand what Git is actually doing under the hood. And then as we learn how to use the Git commands, it'll make a lot more sense to us because we actually know what they're doing, what they're manipulating, what what the what the pieces are under the hood. It's actually very it's very clever under the hood. Of course it is. Um, but a bit like Unix, it's evil genius, but it is genius. So before we get too serious, I'm actually going to start off with the fun part. So the name Git, does it actually mean anything? Because, you know, SVN was the, uh, sorry, CSV was the concurrent versioning system. SVN was an abbreviation of subversion. What's Git? 
Well, the official answer is doesn't mean anything. It's not an acronym. It's not that, which is why it's not all uppercase. And uh, Linus Torvalds actually says it can mean whatever you want, whatever fits your current <laughs> mood. Okay. So in British and Irish English, the word git is an unpleasant person, which is, to be honest, underselling it a bit. It's a bit stronger than unpleasant. Okay. Um, you wouldn't call your grandmother you know, a git when she was annoying you. Unless you wanted a handbag around the head or something. Probably. <laughs> okay. I wouldn't say it to your teacher or your mum either. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, so uh, Linus Torvalds has actually joked, you know, that um, I'm an egotistical bleep word and I name all my project after myself. First Linux, now Git. Oh, so he called himself a bad yes. word. Okay. Himself, which is good. Uh, the man page then takes things a little bit uh, further. So the first thing is it describes it as the stupid content tracker. <laughs> when it describes what is Git, it says it's the stupid content tracker, which is a wonderful sense of humor. Stupid? Okay. And the readme file gives you some options to choose from. So you may choose, depending on your mood, it says, you can choose from the following list of definitions. Random three-letter combination that is pronounceable and not actually used by any common Unix command. <laughs> the fact that it is a mispronunciation of get might or might not be relevant. <laughs> Stupid, contemptible, despicable, simple. Take your pick from the dictionary of slang. In other words, all the different meanings of git. Oh, oh, oh! So one of one of them, one of the definitions of git is stupid, and that's Apparently, why it's stupid content it's tracker. Okay, it must be somewhere else. Um, contemptible is us. Despicable would be us as well. Simple, not us either. So that's interesting. <laughs> The Global Information Tracker. You're in a good mood and it actually works for you. Angels sing and light suddenly fills the room. This is direct <laughs> quote from the man or from the readme file. <laughs> Followed by my favorite one. Goddamn idiotic truckload of bleep. But it breaks. <laughs> okay, so depending on your mood, you decide which one it is. Okay. You pick the definition. Exactly. Well, I'm glad we got that, that out of the way. Important. Indeed. So, let us look now, let's get serious, and let's look at a Git repository. So, a Git repository contains the full version history of a single project, along with all the related metadata and some configuration parameters. So, one repository for one project. And inside that repository will be the entirety of its history and the information about it. Dumb question. No such thing. What is a project? And the reason I ask you that is I use Visual Studio Code from Microsoft. It's a great IDE. And I can open a folder that is a Git repository that I've downloaded to my Mac and I can mess around or I can choose to open a project and I don't know what a project is. Okay, so in the in as far as Git is concerned, is a project is something that you care about. So in, in Git's mind, a project is a piece of work that you consider to be a unit. Okay, so it could be a book. It could be a book. It could be anything. So Git okay. is designed to be completely open-ended. It doesn't force anything on you. It doesn't. It is as unopinionated as it can possibly be, despite being called after you know an opinionated <laughs> snotty person. Okay. So you really do decide what you consider to be a unit of creative work. Okay. So isn't that a folder of stuff? 
ultimately in the file system, you are right. It will be a folder of stuff, but you get to decide what counts as stuff. Okay. But you wouldn't have one Git repository with taming the terminal and programming by stealth. Got it. Got it. Okay. Two different things. Okay. All right. Yeah, it does. It might be something specific to VS Code that it uses this terminology of project. That might be a red herring that I just threw in the middle of this. So let's stay focused on what you're talking about. It's a common thing among code editors where they allow you to define separate settings for different chunks of work. Hmm. And they will call that a project. Oh. Okay. So, and that can actually become ever more useful, right? Because at the moment, we're all JavaScript all the way. But when we're doing PHP some of the time, it would actually be really useful in VS Code to set up projects. Because when you're doing something in PHP, you want VS Code to have all of its PHP stuff front and center. And when you're working on your clock or whatever, you'll want VS Code to have all of its JavaScript stuff front and center. So if you save those as separate projects in VS Code, then when you open that project, all of those settings will come back and VS Code will reconfigure itself into the way Alison likes it for Java script. And then if you open your PHP project, it'll reconfigure itself to the way you like it for PHP. But sometimes you're using PHP and JavaScript in the same project, yes? Well, then you'd have a project configured for both. Huh. Okay. So it really depends. So this is really important if you're collaborating with someone. So imagine that you're you're contributing to an open source project where they have a rule that it's four spaces, not tabs for indentation. Oh. And you're also contributing to another project where it says, one tab, don't you dare use a space. Oh, well, okay. Okay. You, you know, there is a setting in VS Code for how to indent. Okay. Whereas if you do it in projects, you get to say, when I open this project, use this setting. And when I open that project, use the oh, other wow. setting. And it's all saved. And you end up, it basically becomes a little meta file, a little, a little data file, a little config file is really what a project is. Okay. And you can stick that config file into your Git repository <laughs> and version it. And then everyone who's working on the project gets the same VS Code oh. project file. So everyone's VS Code is configured the same way. Oh, wow. You know, I keep wanting to do a review on the NoSilicast for VS Code because I love it so much. But I feel like I've used 0.3% of it so far that I appreciate. But I still, it still might be valid as, you know, beginner's view of, where, of, a, of a good code editor. I, I think if you set the ex- if you say that you're reviewing it from the point of view of a beginner, then A, it sets expectations, and B, it won't be intimidating to other beginners because a full review of VS Code to a beginner is really intimidating. Yeah. A beginner's review of VS Code is really inviting. It's like, like why, I might, why I pick it versus some other code editors. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Try to get started because VS Code is intimidating. Like I, I would like to say I have a fair bit of experience developing, <laughs> and I find VS Code intimidating. Now I'm I'm getting at home in it. I'm now on week two of being a VS Code user full time, and I'm starting to feel not just at home, but I'm starting to fall in love. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the Moto Edit. I've loved you for many years, but it's been kicked to the curb. Um, Interesting. I am now a VS Code person. Yeah. Well, maybe it's maybe it's an app that that's a, uh, a a comfortable glove early on. Like you feel like you're putting your your hands into some you know nice fur lined gloves, and you can relax. And then as you get into it, you're in a whole suit that feels awesome. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, because I, I mean, initially I was just taking it with the default settings, but I now have JS Lint configured to exactly the way I want, so that it automatically corrects 
so that any my my I get spaces instead of tabs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so, you know, I'm very, very quickly starting to customize it and turn it into my VS Code instead yeah, of yeah. plain old VS Code, you know? Right, right. Because picking a coding editor is a big deal. Yeah. Um, because yeah. you really do customize it. Anyway, so the point being, the repository is for a chunk of work you care about that's related to itself. Okay. So a book, an app, a challenge for programming by stealth. Mm -hmm. Right, it's a unit of creative output. Okay. On your computer, a Git repository manifests itself as a folder. It's not just any folder. It's a folder with a special structure. In specific, it has a hidden folder called .git. And inside that hidden folder is where Git stores all of its magic. Hmm. So any Git, any, any Git repository, when you look into it in the terminal, do an ls minus al, it will always have a folder called .git, because if it doesn't, it's not a Git repository. Ah, okay. And inside that folder is where Git puts everything. And what is everything? Well, your Git folder basically has three parts. The database is a collection of objects that represent the entire committed version history of a project. So this database is in the hidden .git folder, and that is everything that you have set in stone, chiseled into it, chiseled into a tablet for all future time. So every time you commit your changes in Git, they go into the database. And that is in that folder. So you, we haven't gotten to the part where you explain what commit really means. I know because it's a circular definition. Right, but I would, I will at some point challenge. It's not chiseled in stone yet. Uh, when you commit, it is. When you stage, it isn't. It's chiseled in, but you can unchisel it. <laughs> but no, what you're actually doing when you restore is you're actually saying I'm making a new version which happens to be the same as the old one, but the old one is still back there. Hmm. Okay. Well, we we can't go too far into this until you we explain more. Uh, well, you don't. You you can rewind to before you rewound. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> right. I see so what it you're is saying. actually still there. Okay. So it is actually all set in stone. Then you have the working copy. So I said to you, it's a folder, and all of Git's database is in that .git folder. So everything else in that folder is your working copy, right? It is a version of all the files that make up your creative project. And they're just sitting there in that folder for you to look at it and enjoy. Yeah. Right. Right. And edit one and do whatever you want. So that's called the working copy. And that's what you're editing. Now, when you start, the working copy is identical to a committed version of your project, but then you're starting to type. You're starting to add files, delete files, rename files, change files. Save files. Save, Save them with hope. those changes. One would hope. So over time, the working copy becomes different to the previous commit. Okay. Git maintains a data structure to represent those differences and allow you to manage the process of taking those differences and turning them into a commit. And the name for that is the index. Hmm. And so the index is a temporary data structure. And the index is used to transition your changes into the database. 
Okay, so if I've if I've committed a version of my code and then 30 seconds later I see a typo in a variable name and I change yeah. that variable name, the index would be tracking the fact that I now have a, a change to the file and it would say this this variable name from change from this to this. Correct. Okay, but it's not in the commit until I commit and it's in the index when I save the file probably. Yes, from the moment that the, the the file is different on disk, it goes into the the index. Okay, so it's doing it. Is it basically doing a diff? Yeah, I mean, it's it. There's more. It's doing more than a diff, but it is at the it is at the very 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 least doing a diff. Yes. Okay. And so, regardless of what Git client you use, right? So you can have the same repository open, and you can have five different Git clients open, and they'll all see the same set of changes. It's hmm. not the client figuring it out. It's the Git index. Oh, okay. So all these different clients and cl just applications to look at Git are showing are reflecting what's in that index. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's a, that's interesting. Huh. So, and the index is what you're using to manage the change. So we'll talk more about the index in a bit. Okay. So you have the database, which is your chiseled in stone. The working copy is what you're working on, and the index tells you the difference between the two. Okay. So let's take a step back to the database, what you're chiseling into stone. Every single thing that Git stores is one of four things. The atoms of Git are four things. And every advanced concept is just a combination of these four different Lego blocks. They are blobs, trees, commits, and tags. Everything in the world of Git can be made up of a collection of blobs, trees, commits, and tags. So okay. let us look at those one by one. The simplest is the blob, which is a computer science term, binary large object. Oh. It means data, the utterly generic data, the contents of a file. It doesn't have a name. It doesn't have a file type. It doesn't have a file extension. A blob is just the data. Nothing more. I have the heard role. the word blob in databases for probably 25 years, and I never knew it was called binary large object. Yep. It is computer science to speak for a random glop of data. Well, maybe not random. Okay. A, a, a yep. glop of data. <laughs> a glop of data. Okay. A glop of data of any type. We okay. Nothing more about it. It is a bunch of ones and zeros. Okay. So that's the the that is the lowest level atom we have here is the blob. The next abstraction we have is called a tree. And a tree is analogous to a folder in a normal file system. So a tree maps human friendly names to blobs or to other trees. Okay. So if you have a tree that represents say Let's say you have a file called hello world.js. That will be a blob in Git speak. And the tree would say that the blob that contains your hello world file has the human friendly name of hello world.js. So that's a very simple tree. It has one entry, the name hello world.js to this piece of data. Oh, okay. All right. If you then create a folder inside your folder, Git will represent that new folder as a tree inside a tree which will have a name. So you will map the name my folder to the tree that you just created. 
And then if you put a second file in there, that will be a blob. And then you will have a tree mapping to a tree mapping to a blob. So each folder is a separate tree. It's not this, it's not this descending set of folders that is the tree. Exactly. One tree object stores one level of the hierarchy, but okay. it has pointers to blobs and trees. So These should have been called branches, shouldn't they have? <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. Same analogy is being used here that we're going to meet in a moment, oh, but a completely different meaning. Okay. But the fact that a tree can reference a tree means it is infinitely recursive. Okay. It's a fractal. Yeah, you can just, exactly, you can have them all the way down. <laughs> okay. So between blobs and trees, you can represent a file system. Okay. But you've completely separated the data from the names. Like totally, totally, totally separated data from the names. And that's really important. Which we'll see in a moment. The next thing you have then are commits. A commit represents a point in time in a project's history. It's a snapshot of your project. And a commit uses a tree object to capture the state of all the files and folders. So that tree will have lots of blobs and lots of other trees to capture the entire state of your folder, but it is ultimately one tree object that references other tree objects, etc. And it will have some metadata like when was this snapshot taken, who took it, the author, and it also has a reference to its parent. In other words, where in history came before me? Who am I the who am I the next step from? Hmm. Okay. So if make if, if, every commit has a parent except for the very 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 first commit. So the very first commit has no parent. That is the initial commit. Right. From that point in time forward, every change is a change relative to something. So every other commit knows who its parent is. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. So, well, actually, I just got myself stuck. So a commit has a parent. What? Yes. Um, it's another commit. Oh, okay. Okay. Nothing to do with the tree. No. Because the, the commit the, could be changes in all different folders and files. So it could be hitting different trees and blobs. It's its, it's parent commit. It, yeah. it was a change from something. Correct. So okay. who came before me in time? It's a list okay. of snapshots. Okay. So who's previous on the number line? Okay. Okay. And then a tag is the last thing. And a tag is simply a human-friendly name for any object in Git. So you can use a tag to give a human-friendly name to any object. Usually you tag commits. Yeah, I don't get tags at all. <laughs> they will become clear in a moment. Okay, good. So the important thing is blobs are pieces of data without name or anything. They're just data. Trees allow you to give a name to a piece of data or another tree. And commits take a tree that represents all the files and folders in your project and associated with a time, an author, a previous commit, and a few other pieces of metadata, if you like. Okay. So it's a snapshot of your creative work. Uh, just to throw a monkey wrench in here, um, oh, a, a commit does not have to contain all of the changes that you currently have at that point in time. You can commit... It doesn't contain changes. It contains the current state of everything. But 
Not exactly, because you can commit a change. Let's say I have a file with uh, three lines in it. I can change lines one and three, but only commit the change from line one. Okay, so now you're getting, okay. Of the things you choose to commit. Yes, yes. So you're, you're, you're now describing what the index is for. The index is for managing the transition. But when you have decided what it is you want to commit. Right, right. That is what gets snapshotted. What you have decided is being committed. To give people a practical example, one of the things I do all the time is I put in a whole bunch of comments. I'm writing all kinds of garbage to myself saying, hey, make sure you come back here and do this and blah, blah, blah. blah. I, or I've, I've got variables I defined and I later on got rid of. And so I comment them out or whatever. I might go through and just clean a bunch of those up. But at the same time, in the same file, I have made some substantive changes and I'm not sure I'm ready to commit those. I can commit all the elimination of my garbage as a commit. So that's what I have chosen to commit. And that is what that moment in time is defined as what Bart's talking about. Correct. Even though Correct. other changes exist in the same file and they've been saved, I haven't chosen to commit those yet. Yeah. And the index is what's managing, what's giving you that choice. The index My decisions. is the halfway house between what's on the file system and what Git is saving as its collection of objects. Because the file system is just a representation of the Git history. What's actually being stored are blobs, trees, commits, and tags. Got it. Got it. By the way, I'm really glad I came up with that example because I do that all the time and I never yeah. separate those commits. And I really should. Because sometimes I, it, later on I'll go, oh, that thing I did was total. that substantive thing was wrong. And then all of a sudden all this garbage comes back that I deleted at the same time, you know, so I, I need to I do a better job of committing the garbage collection, you know, separate. Well, yeah, that's a bad term. Small and atomic is good. Small yeah. and atomic is. So there are four pieces and those four pieces get put together into the different things we need. Now, we're programmers now. So you may realize that there's a whole bunch of has a relationship between these objects, right? A tree has blobs. A commit has a tree. Tags have a commit, usually. Okay. So these are objects that are related to each other. And that's how you build up a data structure that represents the entire history of your project. Okay. And it's saved as a, as a special data format that's designed to be very efficient for doing comparisons, which is why Git, I mean, that's its job, right? Is to compare yeah. things all the time. It's basically a um, difference engine. It's a massive difference engine. Yeah, not in, not in the Babbage sense of the word difference <laughs> engine, but um, yes, it is. And it's extremely efficient. Like the Git, the Git manual, the actual official Git documentation is really interesting because it's this weird mix of... The start of every chapter is really human friendly and easy to read and you get sucked in and you think, oh, this is straightforward. I understand everything. And by the end of the chapter, you're lost because <laughs> they've dug down so deep into the weeds that you don't even realize you're in the weeds anymore. And I actually did that on the first chapter. And I now understand things about the file structure of the Git database that I genuinely have no idea, no need to know. But they're <laughs> fascinating how wonderfully engineered this thing is. It's so efficient. So are you reading and learning a lot of this because you know you have to teach it? Yes. So basically, I know enough to use Git, but I don't know enough to be able to answer any random question you throw at me. <laughs> so I'm learning more than is going into the show notes. So you have to collect so have this to... massive amount of data just in case Allison asks one weird question. And to be You're sure, welcome. 
And also, I've also validated about five or six assumptions. I was pretty sure I understood. And it okay. turns out I did understand. Okay. But I wasn't sure. Yeah, yeah. So now I, 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 I like that this, that has value to you too, right? Oh, yeah. That you're learning a lot along the way. Like I I just said, I sort of talked over you, but you're welcome for the service I'm providing you, making you do all this research. (laughs) Well, you do videos for Don. You know exactly this dynamic, right? You learn the app by teaching it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're amazed at what you thought you knew. And then when Uh you have to teach it, you're like, oh, I didn't know. I didn't even look at that. I didn't know it did that. Or I made an implicit assumption. Let me double check that assumption. Yeah. Yeah. Good 20% of the time. That is a wrong thing. Yep. So something you're going to learn as we go through Git is that Git uses the SHA-1 hashing algorithm to name just about everything. Okay. So a blob is just a piece of data. So how do you name it? Well, Git says you name it by its SHA-1 hash, its SHA-1 hash. hash This audience may not have learned about... Okay. So the job of a hashing function, and we're not using it cryptographically here. We're using it for the point of representing data in a known way. Okay. So you can take an arbitrary amount of data, shove it through a hashing algorithm, and a fixed length string will come out. It will Hmm. always be a certain number of hexadecimal characters. So if you you shove the same glop of data into a hashing algorithm 10 times, you'll always get that same hexadecimal value? Yes. Okay. And if you change one character in the file, you'll get a different glop of hexadecimal. Not slightly different, completely different. Correct. So that's the job of a hash is to be every time the same, same input always gives you the same output, but a slight change in input gives a massive change in output. Okay. So if you have a JPEG file that exists in 500 commits, its blob will always have the same ones and zeros because it is the same JPEG file. Right. Which means its name will always be the same hexadecimal hash. Huh. And Git saves blobs in files named for their hash. Because they have to have a name even though they are unnamed. Exactly. And that's a, that's a fascinating way to use that. The The place I've seen this SHA-1 hashing is um, a lot of times if you download open source uh, applications, you'll also get a, a, a hash with it and you can check that to see if you got the thing that you th- were supposed to get. So the real one has a certain hash. If you've been given malware, it would not be the same hash. And the reason that's important is because when, when a lot of open source in the early years was distributed using peer-to-peer networks. Oh, Okay. And you would go to the official website and you would get the hash. So you go to linux.org and get the hash for the kernel, but you wouldn't download the kernel from linux.org because you had bandwidth that was terrible. Instead, you'd go to LimeWire or something and you would start streaming pieces of it from 20 different people. But it would be quite easy for someone to send you malware instead of the Linux kernel. So that's why you would then use the hash afterwards to make sure that what you got from those 20 different people on LimeWire is actually the Linux kernel and not, you know, (laughs) myfavoritemalware.com. So not as useful for that need before, but perfect use here. Correct. So that means you get automatic deduplication. The same file is always saved to a name based on its hash. So if you add the same file to 500 commits, it's only saved once. Oh, oh, that's that's really clever. That is really clever. Now, if you have the same tree 
the same folder structure. Well, that folder structure is represented in a fixed format. It's, I mean, think of it like a JSON file. It's not, but imagine it's a JSON file, right? Okay. Names. So it might say my file maps to a, a hexadecimal hash. My other file maps to a different hash. Mm -hmm. And you could represent that as a JSON object. Well, that JSON object can be hashed. So the tree gets a hash too. Really? Why? It's because got... it also needs a name. It's an object that needs a name. So oh, the tree doesn't hash. have a name. The tree as a whole is called after its own hash. So if the same hmm. folder structure exists, if you have a subfolder that hasn't changed in 500 commits, it also always hashes the same thing. Oh, okay. Okay. So it also doesn't get duplicated. Okay. Okay. But the moment you change one file, it does. <laughs> right? That's a really commit clever. is a data structure consisting of references to trees and blobs. So the commit is basically a JSON file, you can imagine it as. So it too has a hash. And you'll see these on GitHub all the time, right? Every commit has a hash next to it. That's how you refer to a specific commit. Oh, I have seen that. I didn't. That's dumb of me. I didn't even catch that. That's what it was. That's what it is. So the commits are also named after their hashes, huh. and that's how they're uniquely referred to. And if you change one character in a commit, the hash changes. So you know that if two commits have the same hash, they're the same commit. So whether that's why the peer-to-peer -peer thing works. If I have a commit that hashes to one two three four five six seven eight, and you have a commit that hashes to one two three four five six seven eight, we have the same code. Okay, right, right. So there when I'm looking at at programming by stealth right now on GitHub, it it has b six e d four c six. Is that the end of the hash? That is I, I, that is a a hash of the hash to give you an even shorter name. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So everything in Git is saved as hashes. So you get free deduplication. But hashes are not very human friendly, right? I can't say to you, Alison, what you need to do is check out hash 32A4B7F3Q. No, not Q. That's not possible. Uh, 3Z. C. I need to be able to name a specific commit and say, Alison, I want you to check out nightly underscore 2020 underscore 09 underscore 14. Mm -hmm. That's what a tag is for. A tag maps a human name to a commit. To a hash of a commit. Okay. To a hash of a commit. Oh, okay. So every night, there's a process that runs to create a new version of our book, Taming the Terminal. And that makes a new tag called nightly underscore and then the date. Right, right. That's a tag. So the commit is made and it gets a big, long hexadecimal name based on SHA-1. Mm -hmm. But for us humans... Uh, Helma's code also tags that commit with a name that's meaningful to human beings. In other words, nightly underscore the date. Right, right. So the sole job of okay. a tag is to help us humans. Okay. It takes a human name and maps it to a hexadecimal ID. I will have way more questions when we get into it. But I Absolutely you will. <laughs> but ultimately, it's SHA-1 hashes all the way down. Everything gets hashed and everything gets named after its hash and you get free deduplication okay. because the same thing hashes to the same thing guaranteed. The SHA-1 hash is the magic that makes Git work. And I didn't know any of that. That's really cool. Yeah. 
The second thing that's important to know that makes Git different to other version control systems is Git does not use deltas. Git stores everything. Oh. But because it's deduplicated, because it's hashed, it's very efficient at storing everything. But it stores everything. Hmm. Once. So it does you're saying it's not taking differences? It has to be doing differences. The index. Oh, the index is. Yes. The index is calculating differences. Oh, okay. But the Git database does not store differences. Gotcha. It only stores full versions of things. Okay. Okay. But because the hash is not duplicated. Okay. Exactly. Which is huh. different to how the other versioning systems work because they will have a master copy of a file and then track every change. And that's very efficient in terms of disk space and really brittle. Hmm. Git's approach is I save it all, but I save it in such a way that I automatically deduplicate while saving. So therefore, I get to have my cake and eat it. So not brittle and not, and brittle. not big. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And basically, Git could only exist because of all the mistakes that went before. Git learned from all of those previous three decades of source control. And did Git's the, the joke is that the, whenever the developers had a question... The answer was always the opposite of what uh, Subversion did. <laughs> Look at what it didn't say. Okay, let's do it a different way. But so that is that is very important. So Git stores everything and it uses those SHA-1 hashes to do that without completely destroying your hard drive. So it's <laughs> very, very clever. So the next concept I need to get you into is branches. And the most annoying thing is that branches have nothing to do with trees. Okay. That's Right. For the purpose of branches, what we only care about are commits. Right. So a commit is a snapshot in time. And we said that every commit, apart from the first one, has a reference to what came before it. So it's parent commit, it's previous commit, the previous point in time. So you can draw that in a diagram, right? One point represents your first commit, another dot represents your second commit, and you draw a line to say who your parent is. And if you put every commit on a page and draw a line connecting it to its parent, you'll get a graph that looks like a map of the London Underground or something, right? Every station is connected to every other station. There's no meaning in where they are. It's just showing you connections, right? This one is connected to this one. This one is connected to this one. Okay. When you do that, all of the latest versions are sitting at the edge of the tree. They're leaves of your tree. And for each and every one of them, there is one single line from there all the way back to the very, very first commit. One line, right? You pick any version of your clock. There is one line from where you are now to the very, very start. Okay. But so while every commit has one parent... Every commit, the say, many, many commits can share a parent. So I only have one parent, but myself and my brothers, sh I have two parents. I only have one mother, <laughs> but myself and my brothers share my mother. Right. So that gives you a branching structure like a family tree. And uh, I, I guess I got lost a little bit on, uh, are we talking about, real, is that a, a time base thing that you're talking about? It doesn't matter about time, right? What we're saying is... Is it content then? Has a parent, has a previous. It's, it, so, so it is time. time. 
but it's not like you we're not graphing it as in five minutes represents two pixels right okay That's, okay right rel relative right. This, relative time re this was before that it's ancestry rather than time right in, in a family tree it's time but it's not really time okay okay yeah all right so a family tree is the perfect, the perfect, perfect analogy. If you lived in a world where we were all, um, what's the word for it? animals that procreate without um, needing partners? Oh, I forget. I know the I know the word you're thinking of, but it's yeah. Anyway, if you have one parent, basically that it's a it's a family tree in a world where you have one parent. <laughs> okay. So why so you can have why is this concept important? Well, okay, so what I want you to imagine is the graph, right? I want you to imagine a collection of these lines, right? So one dot for every commit, and every commit connects back to its previous. So you have this tree-like structure. Okay. So any at any point in that tree, there's a line between you and where you started, a single line that connects you back to the start. Okay. That line is called a branch. So the branch is everything between you and the start why do i care well because branches are a really important concept okay i, I don't I know mean, what they're for what they okay. so, they do maybe that's later well how we choose to use them is up to us but they give us a path through time right so to get back well, I, yeah you, okay yes at any brand, at any point in the time, you can make a new commit with any. Right. You have all of these commits that exist, mm -hmm. right? You've drawn this graph, and they all exist, and they all have parents. You can add a new commit anywhere in that graph. You can go back five ancestors from where you are now, and make a whole new commit, and say that my great 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 grandfather is now my parent for this new commit, and you can okay. just the commit out. And that's a new branch. Yes. Because okay, now got you, got you. Now I'm with you. Now there's a new line between you and the start. The other one still exists because it was chiseled in stone. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So we can add more and more lines between us and the start. Okay. And each of those lines is called a branch. Okay. And every branch gets to have a name. And that's how we know where we are. So is the world. branch named with a tag? No, with a hash. Yes, it, it is a tag. It's a it, it's a piece of metadata actually inside the commit. The commit basically says this is the state of things. That's my parent, and my branch name is X. Okay. And as long as your branch name is the same as your parents' branch name, there hasn't been a bifurcation. There hasn't been a split. Okay. But if children have the same parent but a different branch name one of them will be the same as the parent and one of them will be different then you know which one is continuing on the main line and which one has gone on a siding if you want to use a railway analogy okay 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 so we get to name those branches now we can name them anything right we we can call them absolutely anything it's completely up to us but there are conventions that we'll discover but the one branch that does get a name by default is most annoying in the year 2020. We are now in a transition period for Git. So when Git was first invented, we hadn't quite realized that some parts of English vocabulary have baggage. So we would happily talk about master-slave relationships. Mm. And we would happily talk about blacklist and whitelist where black is bad and white is good. 
And we were blissfully unaware of how horrifically insensitive at best that is. At yeah, best. When you hear it now, you're like, wait, what? Yeah. But Black uh, bit bad. <laughs> yeah. It's horrific. Now, Git isn't that bad. We're not blacklisting. I mean, by the way, if you're wondering what's the replacement, it's allow list and deny list, which is actually more useful. Yeah. Yeah. Tells you what it does. So Git's the, the, the landmine Git trod on was that the default branch that just exists is called master. Now, there's no slave, so at least it's not completely bad. primary <laughs> secondary. Right, A lot of primary secondary stuff used to be master slave, where now we say primary secondary. But master is still a word with baggage. So there is a move afoot in the community to flip the default to main rather than master. But right now, if you create a new Git repository, it will be called master. So okay. we're at that annoying intermediate stage. We know we shouldn't, and we know it won't be true in a while. But right now, today, on the version of Git installed on my Mac, when I make a new Git repo, it's called master. Okay. So. Right. So that is a good description of everything in the Git database. So this is a description of everything chiseled in stone. So we chisel commits, which contain a bunch of metadata like who, when, what branch name, and also what which is saved as a tree, which references other trees, which reference blobs. Okay. You can choose to tag commits if they're particularly important. Like the nightly commits on our book get tagged as being nightly commits. Right. You would also tag... Um, I'm wondering, is it here in my show notes or later in my show notes? It might be later in my show notes. Uh, but it's very, very common. There's a naming scheme for tagging. I wonder, it's in my show notes somewhere. I guess we'll come to it automatically. I know I wrote it. I know I typed it, so it's here somewhere. We'll get to it. Um, sorry, I'm not as organized as normal. Um, it's Yeah, it's one of those weeks. So now let's look at the index, because the index is the bit that transitions from what we're working on to what gets chiseled in stone in that database. And really, the index contains two very important concepts, staging and stashing. So the index will tell you everything that's changed and it will show it to you. If you're using a GUI or if you just ask Git from the command line, show me the index, it will show you everything that's changed. And in a GUI, it's very easy to click on a specific change and say, take that change and put it in staging and take that other change and put it in staging and then cherry pick another change and put that in staging. And once you have a collection of changes staged, you can then say, commit those staged changes. So what right. gets committed is always staging. So it's changes, stage, commit. It's always that middle step. Right. What you do something, stage it, commit it. Do something, stage it, commit it. Now, I used to think this was nuts because I came from a word of C, of C current versioning system, CVS, followed by SVN. And in those two worlds, you have no such luxury. You basically have one command called commit. Oh, And it says, okay. everything I have changed is now being sent to the server, which is in charge, and that's that. And for the first couple of weeks I was using Git, I was really cranky. I have to do two steps. That was one step in SVN. <laughs> cranky, cranky, cranky. <laughs> but for exactly the reason you described earlier so well, that's 
that's actually a bug in SVN, not a feature. Hmm. You actually want to be able to selectively choose what you are ready to commit. Like, you can be fully finished with fixing some typos and not yet fully finished with writing a new function. And it's dinner time. Steve has cooked you up a masterpiece and you need to go. Well, you should commit the typos you're finished fixing and give them a name that says what they are, typos fixed, and not yet commit the function. And even if you had finished the function, you should still commit it in two steps because you should have one commit named fixed typo in documentation mm-hmm. and a different commit that says created function boogers. Yeah, I haven't been doing that, but as I described it, I was thinking, boy, that would make sense to do that separately. Correct. Because, and because is it a true statement that anything, uh, if you if you stage them with two different, or commit them with two different names, then you can, uh, in theory, undo one and not undo the other, right? Okay. Yes. Yes, okay. yes, yes. And that's exactly why you want to do that. So you want to break your changes into sensible atoms of change. So if you fix some typos, fix a bug in function A and create function B, that is actually three things, right? You fix some typos, you fixed a bug, and you've made a new function. In the olden days in SVN, I would have just committed that as Friday afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) But in Gitland, you stage the typo fixing, you commit it with a sensible name, then you stage the bug fixing, you commit it with a sensible name, and then you stage the new function and commit it with a sensible name. Okay. And so the index has allowed you to do that as three separate stage commit, stage commit, stage commit. So you have one big pool of change and you've slowly transformed that pool of change into three commits with the help of the index. Now, uh, the first time we talked about this, you gave someone credit for making you think this way. Uh, Hell my master of this, right? If you want to see good Git etiquette, Look at how Helma commits changes on the Taming the Terminal book. You thought she was just verbose at first? I mean, at first I was like, wow, Helma does a lot of writing. But then as I started looking at exactly what was in each commit, I was like, no, this is superb. This, this is, if Helma does two things, they are two commits. They are wow. named appropriately to describe what they do. That is extremely good discipline. That is, that is grade A gitting. <laughs> in some ways that's probably easier because if you do five things it's harder to think of a good name all yeah. of a sudden your name is 10 lines long or something you know and there are limits i believe so that's there a better way limit. to do it. and as i say i used to have stupid commits like um fixed typo in docs fixed bug in function a and added function b that's that's not a good commit message that tells you you're doing it wrong nowadays with git i would have three commits fixed typos fixed bug added function you know? right so. right uh, it also means that if you're leaving in a hurry, you can sort of commit what you're ready with and leave the rest sitting there as still in production. Now, the other thing you have is stashes. And the index lets you do this too. And a stash, I think of it as a temporary commit. It's a way of taking your current changes, putting them aside so they're gone from your working copy, but they're not lost. They're also not yet chiseled in stone. They're just set aside. And where this comes up is I'm in the middle of something, right? I'm working away on a tweak, an enhancement, an improvement. Mm-hmm. My phone rings. Auga, Auga calls into the help desk. There's a bug. 
It's causing 500 calls. You need to fix that bug immediately. Well, right now, at this point in time, the code doesn't even compile because I'm halfway through adding in a new feature. Right. I don't want to commit that because it doesn't even compile. Right. But it also has to be gone. It can't be in my working copy. It has to be gone. Uh, Where do I put it? And you also don't want to lose it. Exactly. I'm not chiseling it into stone, but I'm also not throwing it in the bin. Right. That's what stash is for. So you you can stash stash those changes, go fix the bug, and then bring the stash changes back? Which may or might have some conflicts depending on where the bug was. But. Yeah, so you might have to merge some conflicts, but that's fine. You haven't lost your changes. You have to merge those conflicts anyway, right? Right, right. Because the bug has to stay fixed. <laughs> so the stash is like a named set aside. And hmm. so in the theory, you could have 50 stashes. I advise against more than one stash at a time, unless you're the kind of person who can multitask amazingly. <laughs> but the point being... When you're interrupted, you can stash everything, get yourself a nice, clean working copy, do what needs to be done, and then unstash, bring your changes back into the working copy, and then stage them, commit them when you're ready. Okay. And again, index is managing the transition between what I'm working on and what I chisel into stone. So the index gives us staging and stashing. I did definitely didn't know what stashing was before. I'd seen a button. Yeah, it we basically just take all the changes and put them aside. Don't write them as a commit, just put them aside. So they disappear, right? The changes vanish from the working copy, but they're sitting there on your timeline, usually with a dotted line in a client. It'll show it as like a pretend commit, a grayed <laughs> out commit, a half commit, because oh. they're not chiseled, they're just set aside. Okay. So the last thing to point out then is that your Git repository has a current state, right? Your working copy started as a previous commit that you have now edited. Right. That is called the checked out commit. Okay. Because it hasn't been shared with any other version of this anywhere. Yeah, that's where you started your changes. Okay. And that commit is on a branch. So you also have a current branch. Mm Mm-hmm. By dint of having a current commit, you have a current branch. You get that for free. So when you go to write your commit, the default behavior is to add your new commit to use the checked out commit as the parent and to keep the same branch name. Say that whole sentence one more time. Okay, so when you commit, the default is whatever my parent, whatever was checked out when I started, I'm going to commit a new commit and the parent of my new commit is going to be where I was. Okay. So I checked out branch ABC. The parent of my new commit will be ABC. Gotcha. Okay. By default, the branch name of my parent will be my branch name. So if my parent was main, I'll be main. Okay. Unless I choose a different branch name, at which point I have chosen to bifurcate. Okay. I've chosen to go on to a siding, and I've just given that siding a new name. Okay. In our world, will we mostly be on one branch? Initially. Okay. But we will start to move around a bit. For the audience, I went out on a branch once and I never figured out how to get back. So I'm scared of branches. (laughs) Right. But that's because you were moving around in the dark without a foundation, right? Right. But I still am. And I'm still writing code, Bart. Right now I've been just committing locally and I don't know what to do with it because I'm afraid to push it because it doesn't work. So I need, that's how I end up staying out on a branch. As long as it's not working, I'm on a branch and I don't know how to get back. So hopefully we'll get to that lesson. 
oh, no, before absolutely. I get lost. <laughs> Some of the really most important things in Git is to be able to... Branching is a game of two halves, usually. You start on a branch, and then you reconnect the branch back into main, or master, as it's probably so called. Mm -hmm. At the merging of branches is the art of getting. <laughs> I was going to say the terror, but okay, we'll go with art. <laughs> with art, because branching is easy. Joining them back together can raise issues, but it's not, right? If the changes are not compatible with each other, you genuinely have to make a decision. And, and that makes sense. Yeah. And Git will do its best to help you, but it speaks a language you may not. And until you learn to speak that language, the act of bringing those, of resolving those conflicts is daunting as all, very daunting. As all scary, git. <laughs> As all git indeed. Scary. Okay. Well, that's good. That's why we're getting the foundation from you. So I, that makes me happy. Yes, and exactly that is exactly why I'm laying so much work on the foundation here today. And the last thing I want to do is just revisit tags in a little bit more detail. So the SHA-1 stuff is all great and all, but really we want user-friendly names. And there are no rules. Well, there are rules. You can only use certain characters, but there's no set formula. But there are conventions. And one of the most common conventions you see all over the place is tags named vx.y.z where X is the major version of your software, Y is the subversion, and Z is the minor version. So generally speaking, the first publicly released version of your app will be tagged in Git as v1.0.0. Ah, okay. And that's what tags are for, because then at any point in time, you can go back and say, I want version one of the app. Well, which of these 500 commits was version one? Oh, it's the one tagged v1.0.0. Okay. V dash 1.0. It, 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 usually I just see it as V and then the, the number straight away. But every you're entirely free to do it how you like. But I would suggest that within any project, you be consistent. Okay. At least be self-consistent. Be self-consistent. Exactly. <laughs> okay. But I mean, I'm okay. V 1.0.0. Because I have something out there that I need to tag with that. And I've never, I have not done that. So... Yeah, so that's what tagging is for. And on, on services like GitHub, they actually take those conventions and give them power. So mm -hmm. if you tag something as v number dot number dot number in GitHub, GitHub will automatically create what GitHub calls a release, and it will automatically make a zip file for you and make it available oh. in the blockchain releases. Oh. It's a regular expression on tag names. And so if you make a tag named matching the pattern, you get a release for free. It's just, oh, you want to release. Okay, here you go. GitHub is clever. Can you give two tags to the same spot yep. in time? Good, because I just figured out, I, I tagged my final version of my clock that we talked about on the show, release-1-pbs-100. <laughs> sensible thing to do. Right, no, but I would really like it to be V1.0.0 because it's that... That has this has nothing to do technically with the the uh, the podcast. In the case of that, actually, two tags makes a lot of sense because it makes sense to, to tag something and say this is the homework I submitted for challenge of PBS whatever. Right, and it also happens to be version three of my app. So is right? a tag a release? Okay, releases are a GitHub thing. Oh, right? okay. They're not okay, so don't don't mess it up. Okay, all right. They're names that mean something, is what a tag is. And you get to choose your conventions. And your conventions can be different from project to project. Okay. 
So the next thing I want to talk about is installing Git. So Git is available on all the major platforms. And not only is it available on all the major platforms, you usually have a choice of how you'd like to get it, please. So rather than listing every possible thing, I am linking to the official Git docs, which tell you platform by platform what your choices are. What's a platform? Uh, Windows, Linux, Mac, etc. Okay. okay. So I will tell you my choices, but you don't have, these are just, if you're interested, on the Mac, I find that by far the easiest to just use the Xcode command line tools. You install them by opening a terminal and typing git, at which point it will say, git is not installed. Would you like me to install it? And you go, yes, please. Huh. And it happens automatically. So I don't believe I ever did that, but I installed clients that maybe they did it under the hood for me. They either did that under the hood or they gave you their git. Okay. But either way, you got a git. <laughs> okay. As long as you can type git space minus minus version on the terminal, you're golden. Okay. So you don't have to install the whole giant cumbersome Xcode. No. Actually, no, I have installed the giant cumbersome Xcode. So I might even have gotten it that way. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Okay. So yes. it's part of the command line tools, though. Yes, it is. And... The Mac has changed how it handles the command line tools over the years. It used to be that you had to install the whole big client and then open the client and then go into optional downloads and then choose the command line tools. Okay. And so you basically got five gigs of CRUD you never wanted to use. And every .js file opened this annoying app that takes five minutes to launch. And then yeah, you have to tell it not to. We're not kidding. It's like six gig or something. I mean, it is massive. I hate it yeah. when I see that Mac OS goes, hey, there's a new version of Xcode. No! Oh. Now that we have broadband, it's not as horrific, but it's still one of the slowest updates yeah. because it takes an age to update. Yeah. But no, the command line tools are really small. And so now what Apple do is they give you a stub tool. So you just type git, and all you actually have is just a pointer that basically it installs a command in the place of git that is simply... Ask the user if they'd like Git, if they would, go fetch. So that's called a stub. Okay. And so you just type Git the first time and it says, oh, all I have is a stub. And it pops up the thing and lets you install it. So it's great. Okay. So the the link you've given us will show us how to install Git, depending on, on our any platform. It platform. talks about all the different options. Okay. So my choice on the Mac is just to use Xcode. My choice on Linux is to just use whatever distribution I'm using, just use their default package manager. So for me, I'm a Red Hat person and a CentOS person. So that means yum install git. Hey, presto, okay. git comes down. If you're a, 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 a Debian slash Ubuntu person, apt-get install git. Okay. In Windows land, you have lots and lots of options. But my preferred method in Windows land, because I'm not that comfortable there, is to install the Linux subsystem for Windows, specifically the Ubuntu flavor, and then go apt-get install git. <laughs> well, yeah, well, it's great now that they have the uh, the Windows subsystem for Linux. You can just be in real Linux. Exactly. So basically, so I just awesome. pretend I'm on Linux and away I go and I'm very happy. <laughs> mm -hmm. And also, as we do things like PowerShell with Git at the same time, it's very good. Okay. Uh, the other thing then is there are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of Git GUIs. But because the state is stored inside the Git repository itself, you can install as many GUIs as you want. And you can even open five of them at the same time and point them at the one Git repository and watch the same change happen five different ways. 
I've learned to be versant in two because when I'm talking to Bart, he wants me or he's going to be thinking in one version and uh, one one GUI and, and Helma likes a different one. And I just bounce back and forth between them. And it works for me because I don't know either very well. So it works out. And you have a third one because VS Code is built in Git support. Yeah, I think I and I can't figure out how to use it, but OK, <laughs> I, I know it's there and I've seen it and I go, Ooh, I don't know what it's doing. Well, as you become more conversant in Git, the buttons will start to make more sense. Okay, good. And the great thing is they're representing the same information. So you can actually learn a new Git client by having your old one open at the same time. Mm, okay. Because they're showing the same information in their own unique and special way. So you can sort of translate between the two. Makes sense. For you. So I'm not going to tell you what to install. Uh, I will say that there is a massive range out there, ranging from free open source cross-platform stuff to fully paid for cost a house payment proprietary software and everything in between. Okay. Um, in the future, when we move on from local repositories to using um, GitHub, one of the ones you definitely should consider is the GitHub desktop is what they call the app. And that's cross-platform and open source. And it specifically integrates with GitHub really well. So it is a Git client, but it's really a GitHub client. So it's really good at the GitHub specific stuff. Uh, like I say, VS Code has built in Git support, as do lots of coding editors. Me personally, I'm a Git Kraken user, and Git Kraken is a freemium product, and I sit on the middle tier of freemium. So not, I don't, I pay, but not a lot. <laughs> so I basically, I'm not prepared to pay for the full pro version because that really is for teams of people. I just pay for the middle one, which is basically for developers working alone. Okay. But the free tier allows you to work on local repositories and public cloud repositories. So for what we're doing for most of this series within a series, Git Kraken is fine for you without paying any money. Allison, you and Helma both prefer SourceTree, which is a Windows and Mac client. So uh, Git Kraken is Linux as well as Windows and Mac, whereas uh, SourceTree is Mac and, Lin Mac and Windows only. It's proprietary, but it is fully free. It's none of this freemium carry on. So that is definitely an advantage. And it's well and supported by the company Atlassian, uh, who, are, who do a lot of really good, cool, open source stuff. Yes. Also, they are they are they are big on providing tools for developers. That is their not just developers, tools for software makers, which is everything from your service desk all the way through to your source management. Like it is everything to do with coding, with writing software is, is Atlassian's bailiwick. They're very good. Yeah, they know their stuff. So my challenge for you is very simple. Install Git using any way you want so that at the end of the challenge, you should be able to open up your terminal or command line app of choice and type git space minus minus version and have it tell you what version of git is running. And if you'd like some bonus credit, install a GUI or two as well. Okay. I installed one while we were talking. I installed GitHub desktop, so I'm running four now. <laughs> Yay! Uh, basically, at this point in time, we are ready to make our first repository. How exciting. That is where we will begin next time. I had hoped to actually end by creating our first repository and talking you through it, but life got in the way. So I think, I'm afraid th I think this is good. I think this is a good stopping point.
I, I feel like we got a good foundation and uh, maybe it was all my vamping that made it take so long, but we weren't ready to go forward yet anyway. I, I'll be honest, I padded it out a bit um, because I wrote so little show notes. Um, <laughs> but I would have liked to end with, here's your first repository, ta-da. But instead, I'm ending with, go install Git and then next week we'll ta-da. Okay, so, or in two weeks. Two weeks, next time is what I meant, yes. So anyway, that is that is where we leave it off today. This was excellent. I learned a lot and I thought I would know everything already and I didn't know probably 80% of what you taught me today. So I had a lot of fun. Excellent, excellent. Well, anyway, until next time, happy computing. If you learn as much from BART each week as I do, I'd like you to go over to lets-talk.ie and press one of the buttons over there to help support him. He does 98% of the work here. I'm just the stooge that listens to him and asks the dumb questions. If you go over to lets-talk.ie, you can support him on Patreon, you can donate via PayPal, or you can use one of his referral links. I really hope you'll go over and help him out. In the meantime, you can contact me at Podfeet or check out all of the shows we do over there over at podfeet.com. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.